I did work for Apple. I did work for Stan Microsystems. I bought a sports car. You actually experienced Silicon Valley at its prime, right? Eileen is the partner of Passion Capital, which is investing in nearly 100 different startups in the UK. Think of the likes of Monzo, think of Go Cardless. If we get to choose, we're fund managers, it's such a privileged position. Mm. Do we choose you know, to invest in a team because they're good people, high integrity, they're going to attract great talent, or people are just going to like steamroll over people? You have all your skill set, you don't have any links to your firm at the moment, you're a free operator. What company would you start right now? For me, this one is so important. I feel so passionate about it. I also see a huge commercial opportunity. So it's like a no-brainer from an investment thesis point of view. But I also see the difference we make for people. Welcome to Happy Millionaire, a show about how to make profit with a positive impact and stay happy along the way. All right, today's topic is early stage investing. We speak about the value of building relationships, talent in the London tech scene, the role of luck in startups, and the innovative companies today, right now, that Eileen is betting on and in the near future. Eileen is the partner of Passion Capital, which is investing in nearly 100 different startups in the UK. Think of the likes of Monzo, think of Go Cardless, think of um, actually my third company, Screenloop. And before that, she was actually in Silicon Valley and she actually worked for the likes of Apple, Yahoo, and also some microsystems. And there's a really funny story where Eileen invested in Jay's company, even when he didn't want any investment at all. That is the grit that this incredible woman shows. Let's get started. All right, so the first question we're going for is, um, so I researched so much about you. I knew a lot about you, but I've gone like really deep. And I learned you did computer science. I did, yeah. And so I just want to know, like, as a fellow Asian person, how the hell did you get away from your parents <laughs> allowing you to do computer science? I got really lucky, right? Nobody yeah. knows this. Yeah, it's hilarious that you think I got away with it. So obviously, I was not given that much of a choice. I was told I was either going to get a medical degree, a legal degree, or an engineering degree. And yes, as we know, computer science it. wasn't yeah. like really, it was the easiest of the engineering disciplines. So yeah, that's what I did. Oh, so cool. And then we know you went into Silicon Valley, right? And so you actually experienced Silicon Valley, you know, at its prime, right? So you're working with the likes of Apple, some microsystems. Like, come on, share some memories. Like, what was it really like? Honestly, it was pretty cool. And I thought that I would be there for the rest of my life. Like, why would you leave? I thought at the time, because I had grown up in the Midwest part of the US, so four seasons, very heavily winter. And so I got to the Bay Area and I was like, why does anyone live anywhere but here, right? The climate's amazing. You've got the ocean, you've got Tahoe, you've got all this outdoor activity. It was phenomenal. And then of course, yeah, the ecosystem, as we would call it now, but I didn't call it that then, was thriving, right? It was Awesome. I mean, it was a lot of fun. I've only watched a few episodes of like Silicon, like the TV show, shows yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was really jumping. You would walk into Starbucks and you had to assume everyone in the queue was in tech, worked at a company. If they didn't work at a startup, they worked at, you know, one of the big companies. Everybody did. Like you don't have this experience where sometimes, for instance, in, in London, you get into maybe a black cab or the driver says, oh, what do you do here? I don't know about you. 18 years on, I still say I'm in IT. Because oh, really? that's, that's what a cab driver knows, right? What do you say? Yeah. What? Do you say tech? I'm in tech? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a cab driver's like, what does that mean? You're going to fix my like Spotify, really? Yeah. So I still say IT, and, and they still don't really know what that means. In the Bay Area, in the 90s, obviously, everyone was in tech. Everyone loved it. Everyone was working on a startup idea or knew somebody who decided to do that crazy thing and go work at Google for options and the whole thing. How hilarious. I loved it. I would say that I learned more, though, 
in the dot-com sort of bust. So the two or three years that I stayed after the boom, because that's when you saw, wow, an entire cohort just got really lucky. And that, you know, you mentioned the whole Asian thing. I was brought up to think you work hard. You'd probably, you know, make enough to look after yourself and your family and you'll get what you deserve. And it's a meritocracy and you got to put it in. And going through the dot-com boom and then the bust, you saw actually not all the smartest people I know did well. Not all the hardest working people I saw did well. Some of the best people I would have thought just got unlucky with their timing. And so for me, it was really, really interesting those last couple of years about how much of a role luck has to play in things, what timing does for you, and also just not to buy into the hype. Like every, you know, we know all the sayings now, right? Everyone's a genius in a bull market. Everyone's really smart when everything's going well. So where were you working during that period then? So I did work for Apple. I did work for Sun Microsystems. I worked for a company that went public in 1999. I bought a sports car. Mm, I worked for an incubator, you know, that that raised $150 million in order to incubate and be like a venture studio. Yeah, it was on the cover of Business Week after it spectacularly failed. I worked at PalmSource, which is the operating system for the Palm handheld, you know, PDAs. Yeah, and I had been in the Newton group of Apple, right? So I worked at startups and big companies alike. I have to ask you, right? Because everyone's a fan of Steve Jobs, like still, right deep down. What was your memories? You must have experienced something, no? Well, so I was there when he was out. You know, I wasn't part of that whole kind of crew. It was a bit of a crazy time when I was there, right? It was, you know, the PepsiCo guy had come in and thought he was going to run John Scully. I was there with Guy Kawasaki when he came back. And so it was before Steve Jobs came back. And obviously, I don't know if you would know, but we were very sensitive to it at the time. And I mentioned I worked in the Newton group, which was the personal digital assistant, basically iPhone 20 years too early. Mm. He hated that thing. Really? Oh, yeah. He, he's it's like on record. You could go. He hated it. He oh. thought it was ridiculous and stupid, which is why it was really funny watching him launch the iPhone. But he hated Newton and he killed it when he came back. And I think even when we were there and he wasn't there, you kind of knew this wasn't a Steve Jobsy type thing. And I don't know. I mean, I obviously mad respect for him, obviously, but also like Larry Ellison, like Elon Musk, my first impression and thoughts about people like that or do you really have to be an asshole to be successful? Yeah, no, totally. I would love to show that, no, you don't have to be. Because what everyone says is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he yelled a few times and he like fired people. Look at what he did with the business, though. And I feel like that shouldn't be a trade-off. Those things should not be mutually exclusive. Can we not talk about business leaders who are crazy successful and actually decent human beings, too? So I'm imagining in your portfolio of companies right now, you don't have any sort of Steve Jobs wannabes with that sort of character dichotomy we definitely try to avoid it yeah we <laughs> yeah. do because there's a couple of, one it is something to prove i do and i've said it before i don't want to work with a-holes i mean if if we get to choose we're fund managers it's such a privileged position mm. we get to choose where we place our bets do we choose you know to invest in a team that we actually think is going to do great things because they're good people high integrity they're going to attract great talent they're going to be able to resonate and you know relate to their customers or people are just going to like steamroll over people, have a revolving door of talent, lots of problems with, you know, people and also just maybe PR. And also, who do you want to spend time with, right? Because we chat with people, maybe more or less than I should. But, you know, we're supposed to be there to support our entrepreneurs and to work with them and give them cover and we've got their back. And that's harder to do when you're like, oh, I don't want to give that guy a call. Mm. You know, or actually, maybe I'll just call that person next week. You want to talk to and work with and... And you want to see people succeed when you're rooting for them, you know, as individuals. So I know that not everyone feels the same way. It might sound really naive. It might sound like 
it's actually foregoing my fiduciary responsibility to maximize returns. But my belief, my hypothesis is that I'll see better longer term returns because these people are investing in the qualities that I think will mm. produce better businesses. So on that note, like I've had a chance to speak to you quite a lot through WhatsApp, right? And we speak a lot as well. You probably get so many messages from founders, you're, you know, from, you know, you're working in the government as well for like supporting them. Like, how do you allocate your time? Because I struggle, right? I really struggle. But then I see you, whenever I message you, you generally get back very quickly. You're very quick. Even Tom from Monzo, he's got an incredible ability to just get back to people 24-7. Well, how do you do that? Like, you got to teach me some skills. Like, literally, well, you get back to me every time so quickly. I'm laughing because, and people will see that, I'm laughing because I'm late. I was half hey, I know you're late. late. <laughs> but it's late today in person. Yeah, yeah, so true. late. So, so you're giving me credit for I'm you know being responsible yeah, yeah. but actually, it's a, probably a pretty low bar. And I think... If I were to think about, you know, how much I'd like to respond to and how much I'd like to do, you know, I feel like I'm constantly dropping balls, right? And so I guess it's you just do what you can do, try to manage expectations, I guess, which is I'm not always going to get back right away. And maybe it's that I was so unresponsive for so long. Now you're like appreciative if I just respond one time. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I just set the bar really maybe. low. Also, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I enjoy talking to you. Yeah. Right? I enjoy seeing you succeed or flourish or even work through a challenge because it hasn't always been like about great things or mm. fun things. And I enjoy watching you problem solve. So I want to be part of that or I want to play part or at least not be a bottleneck. Let's talk a bit about passion. We're skipping forward ahead a bit because we know that you're number seven at Skype. Is that is that right? Number five in London. Number I think. five yeah. in London. Number okay, wow. London. Okay, wow. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, you left Skype and then you went. I feel like after you exit a company, I'm not in tech. I mean, I am now, but like, a, you know, traditionally, I'm, I'm a medical doctor. Tech. Everything is tech now, even in medicine. But traditionally, you know, once you leave a company, you either go and start your own, you raise capital yourself or you know go down the fun route what was the decision process for you then I got really lucky I think I was just accidental so I actually left Skype and then took a role at Yahoo here in <sighs> London so I was pregnant with my firstborn and with all respect Yahoo great business of course at the time but also good maternity leave okay. good corporate benefits it was sort of a good place versus the sort of startup route at the time by the way some incredible talent from the UK yeah 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 like I know so many Yahoo alumni they are Oh, right I overlapped with Lisa Rodwell, yeah. who's now at Day, with Toby Koppel, yeah, who's yeah. now at Mosaic, Simon Jonathan Levine. Wolf, yeah, there? Jonathan yeah. Wolf, George Hajajorju, Salim Mitha runs a fund now in LA. Unbelievable. It is actually, very, I mean, I guess it makes sense because in the early 2000s, there wasn't that much of a tech scene. So in a way, I guess we all self-selected, right, by going to what we now think of as a big corporate. But it was one of your options. You know, it's before maybe Google landed here. It's certainly before Facebook or Alphabet did. Or You know what I mean? Your choices were Yahoo and maybe AOL. You know, like it's pretty early days. But so I had gone to Yahoo and I only got into investing because my friends, who were the Skype founding engineers based in Estonia, they had 5% of Skype when it was sold to eBay. And they decided to set up a private sort of a super angel fund or like a private fund of theirs, 50 million euro. It's called ASI or ASI out of Estonia. And they started wanting to invest. But they're in Estonia, weren't really keen on traveling to London all the time or kind of being in the flow, but they would send me business plans and say, or to say, what do you think about this product idea? What do you think about this person? Oh, by the way, the person's coming through London, not going to be coming through Estonia. Could you meet them for us and tell us if you think they're full of shit or not? So I just started doing that and we weren't using the right vocabulary or semantics, but it was basically, I started helping them do due diligence on investments that they were thinking about making. 
And then I helped them make four investments in London between 2007 and 2008 when I was on that maternity leave. And then I realized I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, sort of learning as I go, but so were they. And we just wanted to back good people. Actually, that first cohort of four companies did really, really well. Yeah, which ones? Yeah, so one is Treatwell. No way. Yeah. Oh, Treatwell. Yeah, we oh, did okay. Treatwell. Wow. Yeah, I know those guys. Yeah, 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 we did. It was Wahanda when it was first set up with a Yahoo alum. Yeah, so, yeah, one. And actually, Lopo is just, he's just launched a fund. No so Lopo okay. and Salim were the co-founders. And then another was Mendeley, which sold to Reed Elsevier, now LexisNexis. Oh, Mendeley is in the... Uh, the um, Scientific, yeah, yeah the academic, academic publishing. Yeah, I use that exactly. all the time. It's sick. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah. That was one of our early ones too. And I'm now trying to remember. This is going to be bad if I can't remember the other two. One of them didn't do so well, but you kind of need one to... So it was yeah. Kublax, which was going to be like the mint.com for the UK, where you could aggregate your right. bank too early for the UK mm. market. And then I realized, quite enjoyed it. I even considered for, you know, I don't know, a little bit about moving to Estonia and kind of making it foot is before you kind of did remote working and the whole thing. Yeah. Now it seems so obvious that I should have just kept doing it with them. But that wasn't going to happen. And then I met my yeah co-founders for Passion who started thinking about the same thing and met them through those investment activities, by the way. So we then decided to set up Passion very much in the image of what i'd seen in san francisco when i was there gotcha yeah because you really like built the foundations for what people refer to now as like you know the magic roundabout scene and because you're one of the first funds that actually placed yourselves in the city right instead of as far as we know we were the first fund that was not based in mayfair and so yeah we were east we're on clark and well road close to farringdon we were the first fund uh to have a co-working space which now obviously is very much you know balderton's got beautiful offices local globe's got great Mm. offices everyone's got great offices for entrepreneurs to rock up right but we were the first ones to do that we were the first ones to hold office hours which now everyone kind of does we were the first ones in europe to publish infographics which is now completely like normal everyone Too doesn't know now. weekly that <laughs> um and we put our term sheet in plain english because it was like you know the top of a term sheet every term sheet says this is a non-binding yeah. term sheet so then it's like if it's not binding why are we using these mm. words which make it all sound all legal and such so we put that in english too so i guess fast forward now the venture capital arena, there's so many players now, right? We're getting loads of guys from the US coming and you're getting new people create their own fund. Like, how's your philosophy changed now? Like, what what do you think makes you guys unique today? Because things have evolved so much. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And obviously we get asked that by prospective fund yeah, investors. Exactly, they might be well listening as, right as now. As well as entrepreneurs. I think it is harder and harder to differentiate yourselves. I think what we've got going for us is, and it's going to make us sound so old now, but it's heritage. The fact that our original motivation mm. is still probably what motivates us. You know, we haven't gone on to raise, you know, the first fund was 37 and a half thousand pounds. Second fund was 45 million pounds. Third one, 45. We haven't gone to, you know, 60, 75, 100, or tried to just amass more capital under management or whatnot and just try and be multi-stage. We still really like and value working in the earliest stages. We really like that team building, the company building, getting the product market fit. We really feel like that's where we add more value. That's where we enjoy having the conversations. If you start getting into conversations about your profit margin and you're trying to get three three percentage points out of your cost of goods, so like I just gloss over, right? That's not my thing. <laughs> yeah. But if you start asking me like, I don't know, you know, should we hire the salesperson first or another like backend dev? And, you know, how do I get the culture to work? And how are we doing remote working and hybrid and all? Like those are the kinds of things I really love getting involved in i gotta tell you a story so eileen somehow invested in my company when i wasn't raising money like I was, it was a very quiet thing i said i'm only gonna go to my founder friends um so i got all these incredible founder friends in europe to invest like some of the you know some incredible investors and i said look i don't want any venture capital just yet 
And then somehow, like, Eileen just, like, slid some messages to me. And I was like, um, I don't want to raise, but I don't know what's going on here. And she just kept on pinging me, <laughs> pinging me, pinging me, pinging me. And then eventually I'm like, I took your money. And by the way, I upset so many other venture capital funds because they went, I said no to them. And I don't really? know what happened. I don't know what she did to me. <laughs> I don't actually know what she did. So can, can you explain what you did to me? Because like, you seem like the, the best negotiator trick. ever because I didn't want money from a venture capital fund. And I got a venture capital on my cap table. I was like, what's just happened? Oh, that's funny. I don't remember what I did, but I'm sure I would have talked. So yeah, what was it? I would have probably some negotiating explained. skills, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I do think, but I think this is, you mentioned this earlier, sort of Asian to Asian. I do think I'm being completely stereotypical, making a sweeping generalization, but, you know, my passion partners have said it too. I think, you know, Asians, there's a, you like to haggle, yeah. you know, and there's this yeah. saying that I've said, which is, you know, any fool can pay full price, right? Anybody can just pay the sticker price. But certainly for me, something I watched my mum do when I was growing up, oh, and obviously cool. I used to cringe. I mean, mm, I hated it. Yeah. I was super embarrassed. Like, why do you not want to, tr you can afford it. Like, why are you trying to play off? But, um... What you learn is, I think if you put yourself in the other person's position, if you understand that there's something to benefit both, I'm not just trying to take advantage of somebody. Mm. Hopefully, mm. I didn't take advantage of you. But it's like, listen, I think we can hopefully help. We can be useful. I think we can, you know, offer good advice without the overhead or whatever reasons you didn't want a venture capital investor. I'm sure that's the way I pitched it, which was, but we're not like other VCs, yeah. maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Negotiating has been... Something I wouldn't have thought I was great because I wouldn't like to character myself as, as a salesperson. Yeah. But actually, at some point at Passion, we realized after two or three years. So I do actually negotiate most of the term sheets, even if they're not, you know, quote unquote, my deals. So I think what really got me over the line with that was you've managed to build such incredible relationships with some of the founders in the UK, like some of the top ones, right, who are my friends and they all just kept on saying, take Eileen's money, take Eileen's money. Like literally, I was getting a WhatsApp from them constantly, like, take her money, take her money. I'm just like... I felt like I got like bullied to the corner. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to lose all my friends if I don't take this money. I don't, I don't know what happened. But, but you have managed to build incredible relationships with like some of the top founders in the UK. They all love you, right? If you had to, I guess, understand how you did that, are you able to explain? Because I'm going to interrupt this for just one second. Me and Jay love seeing your reviews, but we wanted to go a step further and let you have the chance to ask us some questions on the pod right here. If you go to happymillionaire.club, there's a microphone in the bottom right corner. Click that, tell us who you are and ask for anything you like. The best ones will be played on the show in a couple of months. Let's see what you've got. You have built probably the best relationships I've seen from a venture capital well, wow, that's um, quite a compliment. If I were to think about that and like what you just said, I think so I, one of the people that I know you're referring to, I think part of the reason is, and this is the whole firm, all of us at Passion, we see so many founders, we can only invest in so many, but I hope that we behave in a way that even if the ones we don't invest in, that they will know that we'll get their back or we'll help if we can. You know, obviously, maybe we can spend less time than certainly our portfolio companies. And that's the first priority. That's, you know, what we tell our founders. But hopefully we're still supportive. We'll give advice. We'll give feedback. They can bounce stuff off of us, even if we haven't invested. And so, for instance, one person that we have in common, I think we missed that deal completely. We didn't get to invest. I was really annoyed because we didn't even see it. So it's not even like we made the wrong call. We didn't even see it. So that was our bad. But by the time I met this founder, I actually sort of was like, what is it that you're working on? What is it you're doing? It sounded amazing. And I was like, I can't believe we missed it. And then I was like, how come we don't hear more about you? 
how come you're not, and I'm not saying this is what people should go for, but at the time, because this is quite some time ago now, you know, TechCrunch was the thing. If you got into TechCrunch, it was going to, you know, you're going to see all your graphs go up to the right and you'd probably, it'd help with the fundraising and everything. And I remember this founder was really straightforward. They're like, I don't know. And I was like, well, what are you doing? Are you doing any? And he's like, well, you know, we use so-and-so for PR. And I was like, first of all, why are you paying for PR? That's a whole nother topic. But then then I was like, your PR sucks because I've never heard of it. So actually, that I don't know if he's told you this story. The way we kind of hit it off, I was like, I will get you more exposure or attention or response in the next two weeks. And I, I'm not going to charge you for it, but I bet you I can. And so he was like, yeah, sure. I mean, he had nothing to lose in it, right? And then I did. I think I, I don't know what I did. I'm sure social media, but I think I mentioned to a couple other people, maybe invited to, you know, a round table or a conversation or a discussion. Only because, by the way, not just to prove a bet. I'm, I'm competitive, <laughs> but, but also because I thought what they were doing was genuinely valuable. Right? I was already kicking myself for having missed the deal. So thought this is a bona fide, like genuinely good thing that they're building. Mm. Sounds like they're doing really, really well. I don't know why more people aren't hearing about this as an example of a great UK fintech. So I think it is about that we try and treat everybody yeah. the same with high integrity and also try not to be as much overhead as I know we can be, but as little overhead as possible. So we're talking about Iman, by the way, from Onfido. And I'd want to shout, he'd be upset if I don't yeah. say that. He's, a, he's one of my really close friends and yeah. he's an incredible human. So yeah. I'm glad he connected us together. Yeah, that's epic. We need to talk a bit about happiness as well. Like you mentioned paternity leave. How many children do you have? Sorry. So I have five. You have five kids? I have five. Oh, wow, I didn't know it's five. Wow. it's five. Well, I only gave birth to four. So I don't know, maybe you heard the four number. So I gave birth to four. I mentioned the first one that I was having uh -huh. when I first started investing. So mine are 16, 14, 12, 10. And then I have a seven-year-old stepdaughter with my current partner. And the secret to this, by the way, you're all like, yeah. you're going to give me yeah, too much yeah. credit. We co-parent. So I co-parent with my ex-husband. So the older four are with us for a week and then with their dad for a week. In the same time, my stepdaughter's with us for a week or with her mom for a week. So we have a house full of five kids like today, which is why I have to leave to do yeah. a couple school pickups. Or we have a house of, of no kids every other week. Wow. I've got some married friends who are like, how do I get that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. how do we get that deal? Yeah. yeah. So, like, optimizing for happiness has got to be something that you've really had a lot of practice with. And, you know, being in a unique position where you're having to WhatsApp people like this guy all the time and, like, be present as much as you need to be present there for your kids. I mean, how have you managed to manage that? I think I'm really, really lucky because, first of all, I think the role of an investor I don't know why people don't talk about this more, but I think it's one of the most privileged jobs, in addition to just applying capital or, or deploying capital, because, you know, we fill our days with, you know, meetings or pitches or working with founders, but it's such an opaque, you know, if Jay hits me up and is like, oh, can you meet tomorrow at 10? And I'm like, oh, no, sorry, I can't. He doesn't know. We're not an internal company, so it's not like, oh, I know you don't have any meetings. Like, he doesn't know if I'm meeting with new founders, existing founders. So if I need to protect my time, I really can. And I, I think that's we're very, very lucky because of how opaque it is. And I know lots of investors like to pretend they're really, really busy. And of course, you could be busy. You could fill your days with events and like panels and lunches and meetings. But you can also protect your time. So I'm really lucky about that. And then I think actually what really brought into sharp focus, because I think you're giving me credit for, for finding balance, but I think it was the pandemic that really triggered it for me because first of all, I had a nanny. So I had somebody who would come in and right before COVID probably did the school pickups until about dinner time. So 
I could go to the office after school drop-offs and be in an office from, you know, anywhere between 9 and 9.15 until 5. So that was completely fine. And then also work after the kids go to bed. Now we don't have a nanny, so I go do the school pickups. But I was so lucky for so many years. But I think what the pandemic and lockdown taught me was because I did home learning with my youngest, so my stepdaughter, who's five at the time. Can't, it's not like, oh, just listen to that Zoom, honey, and let me know what we got to do afterwards. Like, you know, she's obviously going to space out. So I was listening to all her lessons. We, You know, I'd have one earpiece in one ear and she'd have one. And so I was going through all her lessons with her and then doing the work and then doing the homework. And so I, I kind of did like homeschooling, basically, or home learning with her. When I did that, I enjoyed it, first of all, but realized how I hadn't done that with any of the older ones, right? So since the pandemic, I'll go do the school pickups because I had so much time with all of them. And I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And it made me realize how I didn't have that at the ages of the older ones and how little time I've got left. So I'm going to make the most of it now. People always describe their companies like as their baby, right? And I wonder, you know, being part of an institutional firm, does it feel like you've got multiple babies with all the companies that you're sort of nurturing and fostering and, you know, making sure they grow up? Yeah, a little bit. I think that's a good metaphor. But you still think of the fund as your baby, uh. right? So we launched the fund, you know, we pitched it to institutional investors, limited partners who invested in the fund, trust us with their money. So you do still think of the fund itself and the firm as your baby. But then, yeah, you're probably right. You think of the little hatchlings <laughs> that you've decided <laughs> to invest in. And I guess, you know, I should probably mention, because I got to give a shout out. So I'm spending a lot of time, as Jay knows, with one of our portfolio companies now. So I'm kind of on that operator side now, too. And I think what's really hard about that is I probably do want to invest even more time when I'm on the operating side because I've hired people to work on this company, right, with me. While in a fund situation, obviously, I'm a custodian for people's money. It's not like I sold people vision to come work with me. You work with, you know, give me your 40, 50, whatever hours a week. And because we're going to build something together, that's on the operator side. And so that makes it probably harder to do the balance. But um, yeah, you do feel like they're all your babies. Yeah. Mm. Can you talk a bit more about that particular company? Yeah, I can do. It's for TIFA uh -huh. and it's reproductive health benefits for companies. So where somebody might want to, through their employer, think about maybe looking into egg freezing or IVF or mm. has questions about the menopause or andropause, which is uh, male menopause, or, you know, early detection of prostate cancer, testicular cancer, anything that's reproductive, hormonal or sexual in nature, those benefits for lots of reasons, which is a whole nother podcast, are apparently not covered under private medical insurance. Right. But everyone goes through, everyone's got a reproductive health system, whether they're going to choose to have children or get married or not, whether they're in a heterosexual relationship or if they're same sex, actually, if they're LGBT, 100% of those people mm. need support to start a family, right? So all of these things exist for every single person on the planet, and yet it's not covered under private medical insurance. Right. This whole area of hormonal reproduction and sexual yeah. health is not covered. So we do that for TIFA for over 100,000 people now at different companies across the UK and a few countries in Europe. Someone like you must get so many options or opportunities to go back in the operating role, right? And you've chosen this one. Was it quite an easy decision or? Maybe now it looks like it was. And actually, when I first mentioned it to my partner, my husband, and said I was going to do it, he just laughed, walked out of the room. He's like, yeah, obviously that was going to happen, which was infuriating, by the way, because that's my partner saying, I told you so, when he didn't actually even tell me he's so. So I think it does look really natural now. At the time, I didn't think, though, that I would have the time 
exactly to your question. So I didn't know that I'd have the time to commit that I would be satisfied with. And also, this one's an enterprise SaaS business. I mean, we do impact health outcomes for individuals. So we're very much a consumer proposition. But our channel is employers. So we are a B2B you know, business and we're selling to companies. And I don't have that background. I might give you my opinion on how to do it, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'd never used HubSpot. I've never done a B2B sales call. And the, the That's type my forte, of, right? The, exactly. Uh, the type of people I was looking for would have that background. So I didn't think it would be me. Yeah. Quick fire um, before you got to leave. If you have all your skill set, you don't have any uh, sort of links to your firm at the moment, you're a free operator, what company would you start right now in this space? Oh, wow. It's an amazing space. question. I have to say it's the one I'm running now then. Oh, it's for it? okay. it I, I thought you were going to say that. Sorry, yeah. I got to say that. <laughs> I got to say that. <laughs> but I think I think maybe to fill in the blanks, part of the reason I feel so strongly about Fertifa right now is because I've mentioned the children that I've had. I maybe haven't mentioned, but you know, I'm 51 years old, so I'm perimenopausal and I'm on HRT now. I also had two miscarriages between my first and my second born. And I also had two terminations in my 20s when I was working at Apple. So I've been through a lot of these journeys I am an example that you can work through them. You just, you carry on, you work, this is fine. So maybe somebody would be like, you don't need a benefit from your employer. But I am also then firsthand witness to the fact like, maybe it would have helped my well-being a bit if I'd taken a day off. Maybe if I'd actually had someone to speak to, it might have made that easier. And I would have been more productive as an employee for the companies I was working with during all those things. And actually coming off the pandemic, we clearly see companies recognize the duty of care to employees, right? They're looking after well-being finally, and it's the right thing to do, obviously. And so I feel like it's so important to have companies like ours filling that gap for this area of well-being, which no one else is covering. You know, what I find so incredible about you is that, you know, I call it games of life. It feels like you've made, you've done so well in all the games of life. Like, you know, you've, you know, been really successful in your career. You've been acknowledged, like you've got an MBE in the UK. It's incredible. You've got this incredible family you're looking after kids you've played all the games in life right and i'm just like what what excites you now because it feels like there's so many people that are probably listening to this like wow eileen has done so well in all these areas and now and i know you said you're going to spend more time with your kids and then you know you've now taken an operating role in this company i'm just how did you weigh up that decision because it must have been so hard because now you're going to have less time with your kids to now do this. Like, what made you go for this decision? Because it's, first of all, very, very flattering, by the way. Because I don't know that I'm, you know, an example of success. I think I know I'm really lucky because I'm happy and I feel lucky to have all those facets of my life and to have those opportunities. You're right, though, in terms of like this operating role, I needed it like a hole in the head honestly, because I don't think I was responding, you know, all that quickly to things even before I picked this up. And I don't think it helped. But I think for me, this one is so important. I feel so passionate about it. I also see a huge commercial opportunity. So it's like a no brainer from an investment thesis point of view. But I also see the difference we make for people. You know, we've had Fertifa babies that were born. We had twins that were born last December. We've got three women who are pregnant now. You see those pictures, or if you're going to help somebody make a decision about their trans surgery, we're changing people's lives, right? So I think to the point that you made, it's the impact. We're actually doing something that's impacting people's health outcomes, their livelihoods at work, which they've chosen for their career, and also just, you know, their life and their fulfillment and what they're sort of after in terms of their life choices. So it does feel like this is the right thing to do. Somebody's going to succeed at it, I'm sure. I think there are some very successful U.S. companies that could come and just land here and do it. But I feel like we should build a category leader here. 
that's a great way to end it. Yeah. So, um, where can people find you? Where's the best place to? Sorry, <laughs> Twitter. You're you're very active on Twitter, right? I've been less since I've been doing this operating role, but yeah, I'm a monitor. I do pay attention, so yeah, yeah on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eileen, for hanging out with us. It no, was a great, thank you for great having episode. me. Yeah, and, um, absolutely. Yeah, well, hopefully we can do a part two. Um, I'd love to. Yeah. So many things we could talk about. Definitely. Yeah. I'm excited about it. All right. <laughs> He's excited. I'll be excited. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening through to the end. I hope you enjoyed that. And I'm going to be real with you guys. I like winning. I mean, I really, really like to win. And winning to me right now is making a success of this show and building our community of happy millionaires. And I need your help to do this. Can you send this show to two or three friends, maybe your business partners or anyone else that could find a bit of joy listening to this show? If you also want to get in touch to give us any feedback, tell us what you like, what you don't like, even just about something we might find interesting to talk about on the pod, you can get in touch with us through the website, happymillionaire.club. Thank you so much for your support and we'll see you on the next one.